We usually think of care as a relation between a carer and the person who needs care. But the families that I worked with show that uh, that's not the case. The world is on the brink of an astounding demographic shift. In 30 years from now, the number of people over 60 will nearly double to 2 billion. How will they stay healthy? Who will take care of them? And what is the cost of this all? In this podcast, we discuss innovative solutions and unexpected insights with experts in the field of global aging. My name is Josine de Klerk, and this is An Aging World. The world is getting older. Probably the longest period of exponential growth of any large animal in history ever. Countries also have different takes on who should care for the old. And the cost of care is rising sharply. New technologies, new devices, new consumer goods. And who's going to pay for all of the yachts when we're all too decrepit to earn money? Make the most of life at NEA. Register now. It's working now. Okay. In today's episode, we explore the phenomenon of transnational elder care. What happens to care for parents when their children migrate? And how can mobile phones and Skype bridge, or not, the distance between family members? This is the subject of Tanya Allen's research. Originally, I'm from Slovenia. Tanya Alin is a medical anthropologist, an expert on transnational elder care through digital technology. Living transnationally herself brought the inspiration for her PhD topic on Indian nurses who work abroad and send home remittances to their older parents. I have moved around the world quite a bit for my uh, studies. And now I've been living in Amsterdam for the past seven years. And I think that, uh, you know, having my my own parents in Slovenia and being um, away from them is actually, it has been crucial for designing my research project. It has been at the heart of my, um, of my research. The starting point of this research is Heidelberg, where Tanya takes a course in international public health. What she doesn't know when she takes this course is that it would take her to the southern state of Kerala in India. Kerala is really known within India for the nurses that it, it educates. Um, and that is also related to religion because most of the nurses who, uh, yeah, most of the nurses are, are Christian or specifically Syrian Christian. Um, and most of the Christians live in Kerala. So um, I can say, for example, that uh, because I, on, I also did a part of my research in Oman in the Middle East, and I can say that uh, you know there are estimations according to which there are about forty thousand to sixty thousand nurses from Kerala who work in the Gulf countries. During the course in international public health in Heidelberg, Tanya by chance meets exactly the right person who tells her where to go to get in contact with transnational families. I met uh, a person from Kerala who actually was from Kotayam. And she said, well, you know, if you want to do research on nurses from Kerala, Kotayam is the best place to go because that's where all the nurses who want to migrate abroad come to learn English. So um, this friend of mine introduced me to her family. I uh, stayed with uh, her uncle and his family um, and I lived with them for five months altogether. 
And then um, I also visited other smaller towns and also to villages. Um, and I found that uh, while some people, the elderly people lived in this um, really, yes, huge houses, sometimes, you know, with multiple uh, stories. Um, and I was really surprised to see those, you know, they seemed like luxurious villas. And I asked some of my friends, I said, well, how come? Like, where, where is this coming from? What do people do in these houses? Um, and they told me, oh, that is all nurse money. Remittances, money flowing from one side of the family to another part of the family, and often from children to parents, is a common aspect of care provision worldwide. Nurses in particular travel abroad to fill gaps in healthcare systems elsewhere, working both in the formal health sector and as private nurses. There are estimations according to which there are about 40,000 to 60,000 nurses from Kerala who work in the Gulf countries. What makes Tanya Allen's research special is that she does not only focus on the economic aspects of care provision. In my research, I look at how uh, family members who live in different countries around the world um, use everyday technologies like mobile phones and webcams and uh, social media websites to take care of each other and to keep in touch with each other at a distance. So transnational care is... Um, for me about family members who are taking care uh, while they're living in all around the world in different countries. As any other scientist, Tanya builds on work of colleagues in the field. That's why I asked her what literature inspired her work. My research is grounded in, two, in, in different strands, the literature on global care chains. Um, so that is by Arli Hochschild and Nicola Yates. Um, who described how uh, women, usually women, from the global south and the global east migrate towards the countries in the global north and west to provide care for money, right? And this were, at the beginning, this literature was describing domestic care workers and later on it developed to include also professional care workers, such as nurses. Initially, also, this literature was focusing on children and then it was extended to the elderly care because, of course, um, these are also family members who eventually need more care. Um, and I built on that. One of the ways in which this uh, literature was extended is also through this uh, notion of care circulation, which was developed by Laura Merla and Loretta Baldassar. So they both did a lot of uh, research on um, the elderly migrants um, and they, they suggested this uh, notion of care circulation, so transnational care circulation, to emphasize that care is not just um, a linear process. So it's not just from the migrant to the uh, people who are left behind, which is a sort of a very, you know, uh, unidirectional way of giving care, but the care circulation emphasizes that care actually happens among transnational family members who live in different parts um, of the world, and the care is actually given to the person in the family who needs care in a particular moment the most. And then I develop my 
research even further in terms of literature um, by building on science and technology care studies, which explore care in terms of practice. So, you know, not only uh, relying on what people say about care, but also looking at what people actually do to care and how care is actually enacted. Um, so, you know, I don't approach care in advance as uh, having any sort of assumptions in advance about what care is. Um, but I follow the STS care studies in looking at care as something that is enacted in practices, in concrete practices. Normally, the older you get, the more physical and financial care you need. For this reason, one of Tanya's field sites was Kerala, knowing that this is one of the hotspots for nurses leaving their parents behind in search of work. How is care organized when children are not around? That is exactly what Tanya wanted to study. Somebody told me, well, you know, that will not be possible. But it was. As with many anthropologists, coincidence in setting up the study played a large role. Also in Tanya's case. Only a week into my research, I was lucky to meet a lady, a widow, who was living completely by herself. So her husband had died a few years previously. And she had uh, a daughter who was a nurse living in Australia and a son who was also living with his family in Dubai. So she was living completely by herself in a huge house with a garden and there was also a car in front of the house. Um, and I visited her with a local friend who uh, was also acting as a translator for me. She was uh, quite satisfied with her life. And I asked her, well, don't you feel sad that your children are abroad? And she replied very, uh, you know, matter-of-factly. She said, well, if my children were here and they didn't have any money, would they, would we all be happy? Well, of course not. Care migration. It is a strategy that older people planned when they were younger in order to secure their old age care. They already planned for their um, children, especially daughters, to become nurses with the view of migrating abroad. And that's important uh, to know because, um, well, in India, there are really very few, um, how to say, there are very few uh, social welfare um, practices that would support the elderly in their old age. So there's no universal health care coverage. There's also no universal pension system. So only about 10% of people receive pension. Uh, and usually those are people who work for the government, who had government jobs. So there are also a lot of uh, schemes, um, insurance schemes and health care um, schemes and pension schemes and so on, uh, all around India, who are, uh, you know, local, but they usually cater to the very poor, so people who are below the poverty line. And that means that the people who are above the poverty line, or, you know, kind of sort of middle class, these are not really eligible to join those, uh, those schemes. So one way for the parents to ensure um, some sort of well-being in their own old age, so they don't have to work until they die, is to send their children abroad um, and to count on the remittance money. 
So that was a very important part of elder care in these families. But of course, migration also brings challenges to closeness and daily contact. Tanya shares her observations while living with older people and sees how care takes place in practice. The children or the adult children who were abroad usually called their parents every day. A lot of them called daily, not all. Some people called maybe every other day or three times a week or at least once a week. That was sort of the frequency with which they called. And this was very important for both the children abroad and the parents at home. When people are calling each other every day, they uh, need to find something to talk about, right? Uh, one mother complained to me once like, yeah, uh, I actually don't miss my son who had just moved to Australia. I don't miss him that much because he calls every day. Like he calls and then we talk for 20 minutes or so. And then, um, but you know, what, what do we talk about? What is there to talk about? So she told me that, you know, they came across this problem because they were not uh, used to being in this situation, having this sort of a um, relationship, which is mediated by the mobile phone. So the mother resorted to uh, talking about the everyday things, the small things like the garden and the animals that they had and the neighbor's children and so on. And this could be seen as very, you know, unimportant things, but actually they were a way of feeling the silences that can occur when you're talking to somebody on the phone and you really don't know what to say. So it was a way of uh, sharing uh, the everyday life with each other and a way of uh, keeping the relationship up. Um, now that was very different on the webcam because on the webcam uh, I found out that people, you know, they can be silent and they don't even have to look at the image that is shown uh, through the computer. Um, so what they did instead, they would uh, just keep the webcam um, on and they would also do other things like cooking or driving in the car and so on. And they would be silent. So something that is very difficult to do on the mobile phone. And in that way, by you know having the webcam on and being silent, that was a way of um, spending time together, which was a different sort of um, yeah being together than on the mobile phone. So in this sort of very subtle ways, the different sorts of technologies influence the way we relate to each other. Relating through cams and mics is one thing. But what if a mother or a father in India needs physical care while the caring child is in Oman or the Emirates? This is actually a very difficult situation then for the family when uh, one or both parents need uh, physical care. And in my study, the people, the elderly people that I met were from about 50 to over 80 years of age. And most of them were relatively healthy. I mean, they had some chronic illnesses. Almost all of them had, um, you know, diabetes or um, high blood pressure. So these were the two main uh, health problems that they had. But they could, at the time of my research, still manage these health issues uh, a lot by themselves. So um, those people would 
usually talk to their um, children who are also professional carers. So this is also important to note. And these were kind of special families and it's difficult to make a comparison with other transnational families where, for example, children abroad are um, IT professionals and so. So in my case, the children were professional carers and they could also build on their professional experience to provide health-related advice at a distance. Um, but of course, some of the aging parents were also already experiencing difficulties. I remember specifically one couple um, who were both, they were living alone, but they also both had uh, health issues. The father had uh, Parkinson's disease and the mother, she was quite okay, but she also had a stroke um, at one point, a couple of years earlier before my visit. So for them, um, well, they, they still lived alone when I came there. Um, and the mother was actually the main care for the father. So the father needed attention, physical attention all the time. But when the mother had her stroke, the daughter who lived in the US immediately took leave and uh, came to stay with her parents for a month. And she also, then she, take care of, she took care of both of them. She provided physiotherapy to the mother and so on. And this was also um, the daughter who called her parents every day, twice a day, before her night shift and after her night shift. And she kept monitoring her parents' um, condition um, and you know she kept guiding them. Um, they also had a good um, Ayurvedic doctor whom they trusted. Um, so he was he was in the vicinity, so they called on him when it was needed, and he would make a home visit as well. Other options would, of course, be to ask somebody who lived nearby to the parents to visit them um, and, you know, to take care of the practical things. I heard talk about nurses in Kerala who could be hired to visit the elderly parents, but I never saw that in practice. Uh, there was a lot of distrust of these services, you know, who are these people and so on. So, yeah, this was at that time still relatively new. Maybe it has changed by now. Another option for the elderly was a uh, uh, geriatric hospital. And this was really about uh, providing palliative care. So there were people who were over 60 years of age and they really were bedridden. Care is not just one-way traffic. Older people are not just receivers of care, they also provided themselves to their children living abroad. I saw that uh, myself. Uh, for example, I was visiting this um, mother in Kerala. All of a sudden she said, oh no, no, I cannot talk to you right now. I have to talk to my daughter on Skype. And she uh, received a Skype call from um, her daughter who lived in London. And then the mother actually gave her advice on Ayurvedic medicine or, you know, some, something related to food um, around pregnancy and postpartum period because the daughter had just had her baby. So this is how care circulates. Tanya Alin, her research unsettles the assumptions of what care is. The main assumptions that my, uh, my research challenges 
well, there are, I would say there are three such assumptions. One of the basic assumptions that we have about care that, you know, physical proximity is at the core of good care and uh, care cannot be given at a distance. But uh, of course, the families that I worked with show that uh, that's not the case. What happens, though, is that care becomes something else. So um, in India, the, the, a good, good elder care is usually understood as something that is related to you know, being in the same physical space. And there are two main practices that are related to this. One of them is living together, co-residence. So the elderly people live with their, um, with their children, especially usually with um, one of their sons. Um, and the second practice is sharing, preparing and sharing food. So these two care practices, uh, of course, cannot be maintained when children move abroad. So care practices change to what can be done at a distance. There is uh, quite a bit of tension because uh, care practices that are done at a distance are not recognized. And that is uh, in terms of policy and in terms of the popular discourse as well. Um, so family members who had so families who had children abroad were uh, sort of stigmatized or you know uh, looked upon in a negative way uh, by other families um, by people who lived in Kerala so that was one problem uh, but of course uh, there's also the question of policy because it doesn't support transnational family life and that can be seen in the kinds of uh, permissions that people need to 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 visit each other, for example. So the elderly parents could also visit their children abroad, but they were always limited um, by their visas. You know, they would have visitors visas, uh, which, uh, you know, are different in different countries. So for three months or six months, and, and that's it. So in terms of uh, regulations, regulating um, migration, so regulating visiting and so on, travel, um, that of course had an impact on the families. And of course, um, this will, you know, the time we live in now, the time of the COVID pandemic, um, well, that will complicate things even further. Care in Indian transnational families. It is there, but it's something different. There are many subtle ways that care does take place, even when family members are not in the same physical place. But as Tanya mentioned earlier, the technologies that we use in our everyday communication are not neutral. Technologies shape the way we relate to each other. Being together through a mobile phone is different than through a webcam. The COVID pandemic makes each and every one of us realize what it's like to completely need to rely on technology to be close to one's loved ones. I asked Tanya what we can learn from her research about how Skype, Zoom, Teams and FaceTime shape our own relations of care in this pandemic. I think COVID has changed how people in general relate to each other. We have been forced to uh, you know, stay at home as much as possible. We have been forced into online education um, by this, you know, circumstances. Um, and of course, we all feel that things are not the way they used to be and uh, we are not relating to each other the way we used to. 
in my home situation, I can see that, uh, you know, uh, play has uh, become something else when it's done on uh, webcam and also how the grandparents and the grandchildren re relate to each other, uh, what they can do and not and how much creativity there is. Um, but also, yeah, how this, uh, you know, uh, babysitting um, is also something else when it's done uh, through through the webcam. So even in, in Kerala, I could see uh, the elderly women especially were really determined, first of all, to get the internet installed in their house, but then also to uh, learn how to use the mobile phone or especially the laptop then uh, with all the software that is needed. Uh, and they wanted to do that in order to be in touch with their children, grandchildren abroad. Um, and they were also babysitting at a distance. So they would, you know, uh, talk to the child or read uh, to them or play with them on the webcam while, you know, the parents uh, were cooking or the mother was taking a shower and so on. So, yeah, these are all the um, ways in which these technologies are changing how we relate to each other. Babysitting, playing through Skype, health consultations and online teaching. All wonderful examples of the creative ways that we stay in touch with each other and that we care for each other. But if technologies are not neutral means, what do we know about how these technologies influence us? Nicholas Carr wrote a book called The Shallows, which is about how the internet influences our brain. And he writes about the brain plasticity and how um, basically the brain is not the same throughout our life, but it's really plastic. So, you know, it uh, changes according to the new habits. Um, so and now I'm thinking about how in nonverbal communication, the brain actually needs much more information than just the face. It reads the whole body. And when we are uh, talking on the webcam, for example, we don't have that. We usually just see um, the, the face or maybe a bit of hands or a bit of upper body, but not all of it, which is, which is what our brain is used to. So what happens then is that the brain is really looking for clues that is not there. Um, and it's not just visual, it's also other clues like smell, for example. That's also an important part of uh, relating. So on the webcam, um, the brain is looking for those clues that's not there and is trying to get information from the sources that it has, uh, which is why it's so tiring to actually have meetings on Skype or Zoom and so on. It's much more tiring than doing this face to face. And um, yeah, I'm wondering how our, how our brain will change after we do this online education, for example, or, you know, just online work in general. Um, for a long time, for a prolonged period of time, like six months or maybe a year or longer than that. And I also wonder how this will change uh, the brain of the children. Tanya Alin, medical anthropologist at the University of Amsterdam on transnational care practices and what we can all learn about how technologies not only connect, but also change us. I guess what I was really surprised um, about was these uh, technologies that we use every day, the everyday mobile phones and, and laptops and all the software and social media that goes along with it, um, is really shaping 
um, our relationships with each other and through that also our own identities and I was um, surprised I didn't really expect that you know um, usually when you think about care at a distance in the academic literature as well there's a lot of talk about uh, you know the special innovative technologies um, a lot of money uh, on national and international levels is going into developing uh, new innovative technologies for healthcare like you know telemedicine um, e-health and so on and this of course will be even um, going up in the covid eras i mean it is already um, increasing but i was really surprised that you know you don't need special sort of technologies to care for each other at a distance um, but what also was surprising is that you know we really don't know much about how these technologies influence us and these are all very little subtle things so um, for the future i think it would be very important uh, to raise awareness about this um, you know for the people to think of technologies as not just tools but that they actually do something to us and that can be you know either good or bad or you know usually something in between um, but the most important thing would be to pay attention about how how yeah what we do with technologies and what they do with us Thank you for listening to An Aging World, produced by Harm van Attenveld and Josine de Klerk for Leiden University College. Stay tuned for the next.